صلى عليك الله يا حمد نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خلق من نور السلام عليكم As I begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Ustad Saleh Clemens' journey starts with the Adhan. He first saw the word in a novel, then listened to a recitation on YouTube. He was struck by the beauty of the Adhan, or call to prayer. It would lead him to learn more about Islam and eventually take his shahada. A close Muslim friend taught him about the religion and offered good suhbah, helping him transition into Islam. He got on the path of Islamic learning initially through tapes from Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyad al-Haq, a Hanafi Theobani scholar based in the UK. He then met Sheikh Yahya Rodas and other teachers and students who guided him to Tharim and studying with Habib Omar. He also studied in Egypt and Kenya and now teaches at the Sakina Institute and Islamic Center of Ewing in New Jersey. In this episode, Ustaz Saleh talks about how seeking knowledge can sometimes reveal our own faults and the importance of being there for other Muslims through difficult times. Um, where I grew up, I was actually um, a bit of a, a military brat, if you will. Um, my father was in the um, in the United States, uh, in the United States military, pretty much all of his life um, up until maybe he retired from the Army Reserves uh, when I was a when I was a child. Um, so we had moved around quite a bit in my earlier years um, before kind of settling in Pennsylvania. I was born in Texas, and I was I don't have too much memory of those years and. We were in Minnesota, actually, after that. Um, so we kind of moved around to that. And then we finally settled in Pennsylvania um, in a town called Audubon, um, Pennsylvania, which is about 30 minutes outside the city of Philadelphia. Um, and I wasn't really, you know, I, I was Christian. Um, you know, I, I was born Christian and raised Christian. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, we were, we were more of just kind of a maybe a, a quote-unquote typical American family. Um, you know, we, we claimed Christianity, but it wasn't. We didn't go to church every single weekend. Um, pretty much only on major holidays, and even then, my mother is Catholic, and my father was Methodist, and so you have kind of two different methodologies there. And so I, I can't really say that the environment that I grew up in was anything particularly spiritual. Um, or necessarily religious. We, we acknowledge God uh, and Jesus, at least to that them. But it wasn't anything particularly spiritual or religious. And so growing up was just kind of you know, school, sports, and school, and sports, and school, and sports. And that was really it. Um, pretty much from the time I was, what, eight, nine years old, I would be doing sports all year round. 
Um, and that was really kind of what my life just consisted of, the school, sports, homework, sleep. And that's kind of just rinse and repeat, um, basically until I uh, graduated from high school. So, so there was a bit of a time um, that I, I, I grew to, I guess as part of my story growing up, um, my father, he actually, he recently passed due to, um, uh, due to health events that were triggered by COVID-19. He passed away about six weeks ago now. Um, no, that's all right. Um, and so, you know, now I'm doing a lot of reflecting just on life and legacy. Um, and so he's, um, not to say I resented him growing up necessarily, but uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, have that life of just baseball all the time, all year round. Uh, I wanted to try different things. Just because I, I, I was doing it, I thought I was doing it too much uh, growing up. And I, I just started becoming really um, worn out with it. And I didn't feel like I was doing it for me. I felt like I was kind of doing it for him. Um, got to be easy on his soul. And so going into high school, I kind of, not a rebellion stage that I've, and I've never gotten into trouble with the, with the police such as that um but rebel in terms of just kind of the, the dream that i guess my parents had for me and that kind of started in high school and so um i had actually um kind of almost kind of for my own reasons that for my emotional reasons that kind of were just building up in ninth grade we decided i would go to a private high school um in philadelphia which was you know as a, as a young black man you know i'm one of a handful of um, black students that are at the school which is mostly uh, white, um, you know, high upper class uh, type students. So that was something different, um, at least for me than when I was used to the public school, which is where I was going from before. But I just was dealing with a lot of emotional issues with identity when I was in, uh, when I was about 13, 14 years old because of the the excessive amounts of baseball, and I didn't feel like I was really living the life the way I wanted to live. And so going to this high school, uh, you know, I, I started playing football, um, and I started engaging in track at that time, too, which I really found loving. And I think it kind of speaks to who I am as a person, because when it came to, uh, to you know, team sports, you know, you're depending on one another, which is really good, and, you know, and that pressure can be good um, to kind of perform for your teams. But the one thing I really loved about track was uh, that it was just you. It was just you, and you're really competing even against yourself. You don't have to worry about anybody else. You don't really even have to worry about, um, you actually, you don't do as well if you worry about the runners around you. If you don't run your race how you want to have it run, map it out, plan it out, you'll actually not do as well. And so you can't worry about how other people are going about the turns and when they're accelerating, when they're coasting. You can't worry about when other people are doing that. You have to run your race as you've been coached to and as you feel is best for you. Um, and I think that's kind of dominated my personality um, but you know it's just it's just you and you have to go on your pace at your race and not mm -hmm. worry about those around you I think that also extends with the slam with the, an idea of sincerity right um, whether you're teaching you're engaging in work this wonderful work that you're doing um, or whatever you're engaged in you can't run your race dependent upon how others are running their races you have to go at your own speed and that's something I had to discover for myself um, and I'm still discovering for myself, um, you know, 15 years later from when I was 15 years old. Um, and it wasn't until I graduated from high school and, you know, alhamdulillah, I was, you know, I was the only black student 
that graduated cum laude in my class. And just, you know, you've also dealt with you know, being kind of alone or black. You know, I really had a choice either to be, really there wasn't actually really any choice that I had kind of had to be with the athletic crowd because most of us, you know, especially the black students were athletic. And I took up a position as part of a black student union um, between the boys' school and the sister school. The private school I went to was an all boys' school, but there was a sister school across the street. Um, and I took up a position there, and I really started to getting into a very um, pro black, um, kind of an Afrocentric type identity. Um, I tried to find identity there, but when I would hang out with friends after school, no, I don't know how halal this uh, podcast has to be, <laughs> but no, was, we would frequent places um, in which there was whatever. We went to clubs, <laughs> like teen clubs and things like that. Um, and so, but I didn't always, I, I know, and I remember this feeling, like I just didn't, I would go on, yeah, I'd have fun and meet other people, we'll say. Um, but, um, but I would never feel, but I always, I always loved it. I always loved it. I always had this feeling of this emptiness. Just, it didn't, just didn't feel right. It just wasn't, if this was the end all be all to happiness, then what really is happiness? And it wasn't until, you know, leaving high school and okay, yeah, you know, I went to a school to run track at, um, Villanova University, D1A school, you know, so I was able to kind of accomplish that. Um, <clears throat> But that was also the same year of uh, um, Barack Obama's election to the presidency, 2008. And, um, you know, I still had kind of my Afrocentric, you know, personality. And so I remember I, I was watching you know, his election results with um, the other black students on campus. And I just, I, I left from that gathering. And yeah, you know, excitement, whatever, when you're there. But I left from it very confused very sad walking by myself uh, back to my dormitory unit. A lot of my teenage years were really ripped in identity issues and not having a strong spiritual backing. You know, and even still, like when I went to college, I actually chose, I went to Bible study voluntarily. I went to, I sang in the gospel choir actually um, as well. And, you know, so I was surrounded by other blessings who, you know, tried to take up spiritual lines and I tried to do that for myself. But even still then, um, even so then, whether it's, you know, that freshman year college when I was singing the gospel choir or, um, or when I went to Bible study, it just, it just brought up more questions for me to finding the reality, the spirituality, the true relationship with something that would actually create a sustainable um, happiness as opposed to something that's just bleeding. So. How did you learn about Islam? Um, so... Surprisingly enough, now when I say I hadn't met a Muslim like ever in my life before I converted to Islam, I mean like consciously, I like I didn't know what Islam. I didn't know a person in front of me like was Muslim or not. Looking back, I remember in eighth grade making fun of the kid in middle school because he's not eating at lunchtime. Like, dude, why aren't you eating? Uh, yeah. So it's just yeah, I remember. I remember that. Um, and I actually still have Christmas contact. We joke about it now that. <laughs> and I think there was another kid in high school whose I think his mother was no his mother was Muslim and his father was Jewish. And his name literally yeah, I could say his name. Um, his name literally <laughs> was Ahmed Weinberg. And so it's just like and he had curly red hair and freckles and he was like white white and it was like really confusing. Um, yeah, but yeah, that was his name. I remember. I remember. But I didn't know 
I knew the Jewish side. I didn't know anything like, okay, what is why is he mean that? But I never, I, he wasn't really a friend of mine. But, um, and so when I convert, I really, I can't really say like I consciously knew any Muslim. But it was after, you know, coming back, um, walking back to my dormitory unit, and I just had this emptiness inside, uh, this identity emptiness inside, this happiness hole, this hole of happiness that just, you know, as a lot, as the Prophet Muhammad says, that, you know, nothing can fill um, the, the belly of Adam, um, or even if he was uh, in a valley, if he had a valley of gold, then he would desire another valley of gold. And nothing can fill the belly of Adam except for the dust of the air. Um, and so I just kept trying to find my valleys of gold to fill this happiness hole inside me, but nothing was, nothing was satisfactory. No amount of girlfriends, no amount of um, accolades with sports, no amount of uh, spectators, you know, cheering me on whatever. Like, it just, it just music, everything like that. It just, it just wasn't doing it. It wasn't doing it at all. And I, I really thank Allah SWT. Really, I, I really can't emphasize enough amount of gratitude that I really don't thank a lot enough for these years but I never touched I never touched alcohol not at all never tasted it when I was before COVID because I never not that I tasted it after Islam but I <laughs> tasted it before Islam and and same thing not even cigarettes I didn't it just wasn't attractive to me and I, I could only imagine getting involved into that world and how I would have tried to abuse that to medicate my own depression and anxiety essentially um alhamdulillah for that so after um the election president obama's election um you know i find myself in a bookstore and i'm just looking for books um just something to read something to get and just one subhanallah and the qadr of allah the decree of allah this one caught my eye and it's called midnight um and it was written by an author called sister soldier that's her pen name um, she's a she's a black guy, uh, black guy. She was herself. Um, but this book, it was it was a fictional book that probably isn't not probably it definitely is not the most halal books now when you think about it. Um, but it's um, it depicted a Sudanese uh, Muslim uh, teenager who immigrated to the United States with his mother and his little sister, and they're in Brooklyn, New York, just trying to survive, trying to live, and. Um, it actually was one of those like cheesy like teenage romance novels actually mm -hmm. uh, so yeah um, a lot of insight into my personality uh, so it was one of those teenage romance novels he um the sudanese muslim and i identified with him so strongly because i like the ideas and like his strength and his black identity and this prayer or whatever that he was going that was going off with um yeah he he fell in love with a, a Japanese girl that couldn't speak English at all. Uh, you know, they teenagers, but it was pretty epic actually. I finished it was like a five hundred five hundred um, plus page book, and I finished it over the course of just two nights. I just couldn't put it down. <laughs> um, and I just I identified so strongly, so strongly with this guy, and I just remembered. And now I think about, it, I think the author had it wrong because they said it was pasta prayer. But they mentioned the sun like being set, so like I, they didn't have that right. <laughs> but, um, but they talked about like the adhan and like the call to prayer. Right? There are the adhan. They didn't say call to prayer, but they said adhan. And I remember this word, and I was like, okay, what's the adhan? And so, and mind you, in this time, like on a weekly basis, I'm in Bible study. 
uh, questioning the people leading it, why Jesus, why Jesus, uh, peace be upon him, is recorded to have said, uh, you know, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me when he's on the cross? That sounds like he gave up on faith before he would have died as opposed to actually was stood. So it's like a lot of, and the, the question, the, and the answers just would never be there. They never, they would never be there. It would be just, well, we have to have faith or just, when he took on the sins of the world, I was like, okay, so then what kind of accountability do we have? What's the purpose of me even being good? What's the purpose of me following his example at A.S.A.N.? What, what would be the what would be the purpose <clears throat> if he took on my sins already? Then okay, whatever. I'm just gonna believe in him and I'm I'm good. And so it, it's just it's no, nothing would really be answered. Couldn't really connect. Like okay, but how does this relate to the purpose of my existence? What? Yes, we're called to worship God, sure. But if I choose not to worship God, but I say I believe in God, I mean by all means then. Some of the worst criminals in history could say they they believe in God, but they don't work to do the works. I don't have to name off names of criminals in history that have um, done that. So it's just it just wasn't satisfactory. But when I looked up the event, going back to the the word from the book, I looked it up on YouTube, and I still have the original event that I, I, I listened to um, saved in my uh, favorites. And so I I list I, I listened to the event. So Hanukkah. I listened to the Adhan on this YouTube thing, and I saw images in front of me of the Quran, of the Kabis, of um, actually Sufi um, Turkish uh, dervishes um, in front of me. I didn't know what it was, but I saw it was beautiful, of massages, of carpets, of people praying, of people just a lot of beautiful imagery, and I'm hearing this Adhan called out. I, and it's not really... This event would probably be number two that I've heard. My favorite event ever is when it was the event by the specific individual that was called in Tidim when I was studying there. If you would call it at every um, Aisha Salat. Uh, that, that was my favorite event ever. But this one I first listened to was number two. Um, but it's just so beautiful. And I don't think if it wasn't, I think this is a point for us as Muslims today that we, and I think something that we see um, throughout, you know, like in the Ottoman Empire and we see it reflected in Turkey. Um, and in other places, but uh, we, you can't really underestimate the value of something beautiful, having ihsan, a sense of excellence and beauty. Um, that Allah SWT loves beauty because he is, he is beauty. And having beauty within our religion, our faith, and when we're calling out things, when we're studying Quran to the best of our ability, it really can attract, it really can. And so it was just so beautiful, the words I was listening to. I didn't understand any of it, obviously, at the time. <clears throat> I didn't understand the words on the screen. I didn't understand the Arabic handwriting. Yeah, I didn't know what it was, but I felt something powerful that whatever I'm witnessing right now, that this is God's true religion. This is true religion. This is truth right here. And so I looked up, you know, okay, what is Islam? And it was a very, very random, I don't even think it exists anymore, um, Islamic website that just, okay, what, what is this? And so... You know, I saw it has some information on there on the Prophet Muhammad uh, and kind of a, a very brief account of his story. Okay, you know, Moy was born, he was an orphan, uh, he was then, um, a, you know, he did some traveling, he was a merchant, okay, he married, okay, you know, guy, and then. You know, revelation descended upon him from Gabriel. Oh, okay, Gabriel, I know that name. 
you know, and then kind of led prophecy. And within 23 years, he pretty much <laughs> conquered the greatest feats of both religious, um, you know, religious expedition and also a military expedition and also a political expedition <laughs> for 23 years. Uh, oh, you know, uh, completely changed the face of the planet in a very short time. Like, okay, I think I, it makes sense to me. Like the story, it makes sense. It wasn't just like in the beginning, it was just, you know, light walking or anything such as that, but I can connect with this. And I think, you know, we, we definitely, as um, at least in my best recollection from um, the Cofito uh, you know, and what's mentioned in there is that, um, you know, anything that doesn't, you know, go to the level of equating him, you know, with God, then all praise is really, you know, for the Prophet Muhammad We don't put him, obviously, at the level of divinity, but anything that's below that is permissible in terms of praising him, and so obviously he has that Maqam, we know his, we know his station, uh, you know, Maqam al-Mahmood, the praiseworthy station, that he, sallallahu has, and the fact that his name, sallallahu is written on the Arsh next to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's the only one that has that, as they say in the Adam Ali Salatu Wasallam. Saw when he was um, when he was created, um, as this recorded some narrations. But in any regard, so we know the station. But I could, despite him having that station, I could still relate to this boy that was searching. Right? And Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in Surah you know. We found you lost, and then we guided you. Uh, you know, and I could identify with that. You know, sense of being lost. It wasn't the same. It's not the same in terms of what a loss or what John meant. Allah knows that's what that loss that he's referring to meant. But you know, that feeling though of searching, of looking for truth, of trying to find it, and what we know, what he did in that cave of hell, you know, looking for truth, meditating on the truth, um, being in commune with God, Subhanahu wa Taala. That I could connect with that. Um, and it made sense. It made sense how somebody such as this could be chosen by God. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Could be chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the greatest of missions. And then after that, I saw the account of Jesus, wasalam, and it just, the, the Muslim account of Isa, wasalam, of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. It's just, it made absolute sense to me. And it really confirmed a lot of how I was kind of feeling about him before. And no, he wasn't a God. He wasn't God incarnate as the son, but he was one of the greatest individuals that have ever walked the face of the earth. Mm. And he was chosen by God. And it confirmed his miraculous birth of Seda Mariam, and confirms the miracles of him blowing into a clay burning, coming to life, resurrecting individuals um, after death by Allah's permission. Why was reading about Isa al-Islam such a big turning point for you? It was just, it was just, <sighs> Alhamdulillah. It was just so beautiful seeing Jesus, wasalam, written about in this way and understood in this way. And it just it just made absolute sense. The intellectual aspect of me, um, I can be very curious and ask a lot of questions, and it just it just made sense. But it was not just made sense intellectually, but it made sense in my heart, um, in terms of the difference between the creator and the creation, and how the creator 
transcends creation, but there's still a distinction between the two. And it doesn't mix in between or anything such as that, if that makes any sense. And so it's just, it's just absolutely beautiful. And I think it's, I mean, it's no secret to why um, really that Surah Maryam and Surah Ali Imran are my two favorite uh, surahs without any doubt. Um, <clears throat> I could listen to either one of those, just period. Um, and it's because it just brings me back to those accounts of Jesus and السلام, and Maryam السلام, and just how they were described in their beauty and in their faith and in their steadfastness and in their and the beauties of their families and everything that went with them is just Allahu Akbar. What more can you say than Allahu Akbar? So that's kind of uh, what led to my conversion. And then there is a kind of a conversion part too, because at the same time that I was kind of enthralled by all this beauty and this, oh my goodness, what is this Islam? And I just pray, I looked up prayer, but I didn't know really, okay, obligatory, like how do I pray? I tried to download a prayer manual, but I didn't really understand it. Um, so I just listened to the other like in the morning. That's what I did. The one that I converted with, that's what I listened to. And, but even before then I looked up how to convert and, you know, okay. So I said the words, I took a shower and I actually said the words um, for conversion in the, um, in the dormitory bathroom, which, you know, obviously it didn't advise me not to say it in the bathroom, <laughs> but I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and so, yeah, so um, maybe that's why I, I technically converted a second time. Maybe it wasn't accepted the first time it was in the bathroom. Uh, but anyways, so, um, but at that same time, Shaitan was the, trying to get me because it was at the same time that I, I, yeah, I met somebody that I never thought would become my girlfriend because she was just too beautiful and amazing and everything such as that. But nonetheless, you know, I, I got into a relationship just at the same time as well. Um, and so between that and not knowing how my parents would really accept Islam and not really understanding it in total, because I didn't know any Muslims. I didn't know, I didn't know any Muslims. I didn't know really what Islam was. I just knew that, this man, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he's the last prophet. And Jesus sallam, is a prophet and that God is one God. That's all I knew. Um, and so I still wore my cross, actually, at this time. Um, and I, I was still singing in the gospel choir and I would still attend the Bible studies. But my questions got a little bit more intense in the Bible studies <laughs> in terms of their questioning, uh, which got me in trouble one time with one of the teachers that kind of scolded me saying, this is the word we believe in the word so don't question the word uh, i was like oh, whatever but um and every time in the gospel part that we mentioned like if we would say like jesus is lord or yeah if we would say that um i remember i would i just wouldn't say jesus i wouldn't i wouldn't put i just wouldn't sing like that word um and i could hide in the choir because it's a whole bunch of people singing so nobody could tell <laughs> um but i just you know i believed in it and i claimed it to private folks around me um, into closer friends at the time, but it wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember that came to a point and I knew I, and I knew I, I couldn't eat pork. I knew that one too. So I stopped eating pork. <laughs> that one, got there. that's always there. <laughs> um, mashallah. Uh, if only we had the ability to stay away from other muharamat, to stay away from other 
uh, sins and transgressions as the Muslims stay away from pork. Allah give us that uh, that ability, inshallah. <laughs> um, seriously. Anyways, um, I remember several months later into this relationship um, with this girl, um, I was visiting her at her home in Miami with her family um, during summer break, and um, and I remember at that point, like I I was waffling whether or not to go back to christianity or islam and i told i remember telling her that oh you know no that is muslim thing it was just kind of a phase but i didn't really believe the words that were coming out of my mouth um but a couple of months later we had a pretty bad um a pretty bad breakup um just because you know there were just my values were just really conflicting in terms of like the relationship and um and my identity trying to be Muslim, et cetera, like that. It's just, there was a lot of differences that were just coming about. Um, and, you know, she was just leading a different life than I was. Um, and so I was, but it was at the same time. And I think it's very valuable. It's just very valuable. And I, and I know I hold on to this just for myself, um, or I need to hold on to this for myself. And, you know, anybody, you know, listening in, I would really advise that if you have people that are, just in general, if you have people, whether they're, whether they're interested in Islam or not, or if they are somewhat interested in Islam, the value of connecting and friendship is invaluable. Um, at the same time as this breakup, I um, finally met a Muslim that I knew was Muslim <laughs> because, and I only knew he was Muslim because I walked into the bathroom in the new dorm unit and he was washing his feet <laughs> in the bathroom. I was like, okay, wait, I know this. <laughs> um, subhanAllah. And it wasn't, you know, and, you know, and knowing him, um, and I, we've lost touch over the years. Um, I hope, I hope that uh, we can reconnect. I haven't been able to reconnect with him. But, um, you know, thinking back on him, right, he, he didn't, and I know this because I think back on he didn't pray all of his prayers at the time. He too had a girlfriend actually at the time. Uh, um, he didn't pray all of his prayers on time. He would pray, but not all, always on time. You know, eating habits might have been questionable, but he was a friend to me and I needed that. And he would still tell me stories of the, you know, and I remember he would tell me stories of the, the people of the cave, Ashab al And he would tell me the companions of the cave. And he would tell me, you know, stories that are found in the Quran or found in the Hadith. And he would tell me these, well, we're just sitting together, you know, just eating for dinner or for lunch or whatever. You know, we would go out in between classes um, and we would, you know, just throw around a football and just talk. And we talk about a lot about philosophy in life. Um, and he was just a friend for me. I, and I became, and, I'm, and I I'm feel comfortable admitting this, I became extremely actually suicidal at the time of, um, uh, at the time of the breakup. It really severely emotionally affected me. And if I didn't have uh, him as a friend, he, he actually, um, he prevented me from um, killing myself actually. Um, because there was a night that I was just so overcome with grief, anxiety and, and depression um, that I, I grabbed a, a bottle of pills that I, that I had and wrote out a suicide note. Um, and I was gonna take it, but then I went to his room and he was in his room with his girlfriend, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, but seriously, everybody can play a part in that. Everybody, no matter who you are, just be sincere, be a friend and try to, you know, promote the religion in the positive way that you can and be there for people. They'll see the good. Um, and they just comforted me. Um, 
and you know took the took the bottle away from me and you know helped me to you know just go home to my parents to my mom's that night and um and alhamdulillah you know you know I, I had to work through that a lot i had to really work through that um and it took it took a long time to be able to heal um from and it really it was really a, an identity split i think at that time and really like just mm-hmm. just so overcome just with a lot of things and i think that the breaking of that relationship was kind of that tipping point for me but alhamdulillah for it because i never would have came really fully into islam if it wasn't for it um and so yeah he was just a friend and he would just hang out with me he would um you know, throw around football. We talk about life, philosophy. We took a class together in Islamic theology and philosophy that was actually taught by a Lebanese Christian. <laughs> I think about it um, at the school. They couldn't, I guess, get one Muslim to teach the Islamic <laughs> course, and so it's just so much that was wrong <laughs> with that. Um, I remember arguing. We argued with the teacher so much. <laughs> There's so much wrong, like why do women wear the niqab while they wear it out of just like no no it's like no <laughs> anyways um but yeah he was just a friend and so um and eventually after a couple of months because the breakup occurred in september it was almost exactly a year later um i told him i was ready to convert again so i took my shahada with him it didn't have to be a big announcement in the masjid after juma or whatever no i wasn't even connected to a masjid at the time but uh yeah and he did that he took my shahada back again with him and he taught me how to pray and i finally started learning to pray from him so everybody everybody can play a part and so and from there from then on forth um kind of just you know just took off and learned more and connected more and one thing led to another um it's such a um, beautiful and like it really pulls at the heartstrings, like all parts of that story. Can you talk about some of the challenges when you first uh, took your shahada and, and also like kind of this like emotional weight? Um, did it change? Did it improve after you took your shahada? Or was there like a lot you still have to work through? So like the second shahada, you mean? Yeah. I'm very for the second opportunity. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so emotional weight, um, it it was the, the real, the emotional weight really was just kind of the, the, the renewed, like kind of isolation that I felt at the time. Cause I was still like running track on the track team, but then I started learning like, oh, okay my aura's exposed and you know actually kind of fortunately i was actually injured so i really actually couldn't run and i had to get surgery um on a hip i tore my actually tore my labrum uh, 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 had a labral tear in my um right hip joint and uh, i think i suffered it actually in high school and i kept running on it and i just would never get better and i dealt with a lot of knee tendonitis issues and then it came you know after a, a few scans i was able to finally you know see that there was a tear in my hip um, and I had to get surgery on it after trying out a, chiro- uh, a chiropractor for uh, about a year. But um, so, you know, I wasn't running at the time, which was fortunate, but I still have the same friends. But, you know, because, you know, the girlfriend thing and then my circle of friends got really kind of it really shrunk. Um, and it just kind of felt suffocating. Right. At Villanova. Um, I transferred schools to Temple University. Um, 
after that spring semester, and, and it was that spring semester or that fall semester, whatever, one of those two. It was it was only one of those that I didn't um, get like the dean's list or the honor roll that I normally was accustomed to. I actually my grades kind of it went down in that year, um, and so there was a lot of emotional weight, not just dealing with the, also just the kind of my own depression and anxiety and mental health challenges that you know resulted at the time. But then there's the identity crisis. There's trying to navigate a new space because he was kind of really the only Muslim that I knew, and I kind of met a couple others. And so I went to Temple because there was one that's in the inner city. Um, Villanova's on the outside of the city. Um, mm-hmm. And so Temple has there's a lot larger um, Black student population. I started getting involved with MSA-related events. Um, but even still, those were primarily dominated by um, uh, more immigrant Muslims, which, you know, I, I remember in those days just kind of like, uh, you know, it just there wasn't so much of a connection just with a lot of them there's still there's a couple that really i connected with and that were those are still friendships that i kind of still have today um but that sense of belonging fully wasn't there completely um still always feeling that kind of other but i went to temple university to kind of still put myself in still around more muslims uh, more black students etc like that but I, i lived in my own apartment and i also worked full time going to temple and i stopped running track and so um and so those years were still marred with, um, they were still marred with uh, trying to find now an Islamic identity on top of my own emotional working that I still mm-hmm. had to go through, um, which was, which is tough because where I lived was in a very, very, um, I don't want to put labels, um, just more conservative strand, more conservative strand of Islam. Uh, a very oh, a very Salafist approach to Islam. That was the community that was really that I was really engaged in, because those were uh, where I saw all the predominantly Black inner city Muslims. That's probably mm-hmm. how they kind of so I kind of attached to that. But then that was different than kind of the MSA folks um, that I was engaged with, and so it was this push and pull of how kind of navigate my Islamic identity. Um, and I still remember, and uh, you know, I don't I don't necessarily. I, I, in terms of how Salafism is commonly understood, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a Salafi you know, or anything such as that now, but Salafi in terms of the traditional sense of you follow those who, you know, are amongst the, those blessed generations that ultimately your scholarly take is from that. You know, then all of us that take from our teachers and our tradition, we're all Salafis. So, you know, I, I'll trick people and say, yeah, you know, because <laughs> I'm still in that space. My primary community is still in that space, so, you know. but anyways um so yeah um i just it just it just wasn't working for me and i just remember just one day i was praying in one of the msa one of the msa rooms muslim student association rooms with a group of brothers and i remember just getting so filled with anger towards them and looking down upon them for them praying with their pants below their ankles. And I remember that feeling of belittling and like looking down on them for that. And it's those fears of like arrogance really like, it's a scary place to be in. I just couldn't, and once I got kind of, I became aware of that kind of arrogance that was developing inside of me, it really kind of pushed me away then from, cause I just felt you just can't, there's, there just can't be, this can't be a complete way and the, and the only way to follow the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
if I'm developing these feelings and I would see these feelings reflected in not all members, but in some people um, that were around me. And obviously this is something that pervades different sects and ideologies within Islam. That's without doubt. Um, but I knew that I just, I couldn't stick to where I'm at if I wanted to really actually grow and really find myself within this religion and within life. Um, I ended up committing the one of the cardinal sins of Salafism, we'll put it, of uh, taking knowledge from somebody that wasn't pre-authorized, um, that wasn't unknown. Uh, and so I remember I was in an Islamic bookstore and I saw like a CD set from uh, a sheikh uh, by the name of Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyad al-Haq, who's um, a Hanafi Diabandi-based scholar in the UK. But I didn't, know, I didn't know that. I just saw him in the bookstore and so I thought he was on the pre-approved list because um, you're always a not to take from those unless they've been you know uh vetted out and etc um don't take from those that are unknown and we should be careful from who we take our religion from but yani in any regard <laughs> um so um i listened to this lecture of his and he was quoting quran and hadith authentic hadith and everything he was saying was making sense. And I was like, oh yeah, this guy's good. And then I come to learn of where he was teaching, El Kothar Academy, I believe it's called, in, um, in the UK, in Leicester, Leicester or Leicester, whatever it is. I found that, oh, well, he studied here. Oh, but these people, what's this Hanafi thing? Well, oh, and I just started <laughs> learning just more. And then I, I became, I, I, I have to, are you South Asian at all? Yeah. <laughs> you are South Asian? Are you Pakistani specifically or? I, I'm both Indian and Pakistani. Indian and Pakistani. So I pretty much became like an adopted Pakistani, like black <laughs> child, essentially. Because then I started really getting into like, not really getting into like it was a thing to get into, but, you know, I started taking from him. And then I, okay, what are other scholars that are like him? And I saw Mufti Muhammad, uh, uh, Mufti Muhammad uh, Ibn uh, Adam Al-Kawthari, Sheikh Abdurrahman Ibn Yusuf al Manjara. Uh, and others like primarily in the UK base, like the mm-hmm. Hanafi, like the Hanafi imams. Um, I started really, <laughs> yeah. So you're familiar. <laughs> um, I really, and I, you know, I still listen to a couple things here and there from them, but not so much now. But you know, I definitely appreciate them. Um, but but when I listen, I just I hear Quran and Hadith and authentic and I plausible explanations and oh. Imam Abu Hanifa, he was actually a tabi'i himself. He was in that first three generations. So technically, if I listen to his opinions, don't I fall into, you know, <laughs> don't I, I don't know. Like, it just makes sense to me. Uh, and that's I learned about the other madhahib, Imam Malik ibn Anas, rahimahullah ta'ala, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, Imam Ahbib ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah ta'ala. All of them amongst the salaf. All of them amongst them. Like, oh. So if you follow a madhab, you follow these guys' opinions, and then the thousands of years of refinement and scholarship that ensued following their opinion, then yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I ended up becoming, initially I became Hanafi, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved me from being Hanafi in my later years. I'm Shafi now. But, um, so, <laughs> I'm just joking. But, um, you know, I started and I wore, I wore a turban wrapped like that, like they were in, the, in those Daru Ulums. I wanted to go to a Daru Ulum. I was, I was dead set. I was so dead set after graduation on going to Daru Ulum Dioband. I was ready to go. <laughs> I was going to be the one black student there amongst all the Indians. <laughs> I was so set. Um, and then 
and then after graduation, then I started learning of some Darul Ulum, like Darul Ulum Zakariyah in South Africa. And then I learned about Darul Ulum Al-Arabiya Al-Islamiyya, which is a Shafi Darul Ulum in South Africa as well. And really, when I started looking at different places to study um, after graduation, and really, like, I graduated early from college, a semester early. I didn't even go and walk in my graduation. I just bounced. <laughs> I went straight to Canada and tried to learn some Arabic with uh, with my Tablighi Jama'at teacher who didn't speak any English but only spoke Urdu. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's, so I also got into Tablighi Jama'at kind of thing for a little bit. I was, I was all in it. Um, and then um, I came back to the United States and, um, and uh, you know, I was trying to look at those sort of looms. Um, I ended up getting married um, to my, my still wife now. Um, and we have, you know, three children now. Oh. Uh, alhamdulillah. Um, so that's actually what prevented me from going to the Dorothea Bank. <laughs> she wasn't for it already, or South Africa. But we made intentions to go to um, Egypt after some time together. I guess why Egypt, and um, and how did you choose there over anywhere else? I mean, really, Egypt was just a place we could agree on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, actually, it was more so. So around this time, um, Asia was definitely a possibility, you know, to learn Arabic. Um, and then we, I remember when I was looking at that South African Shafi Darulum, I came across like a Habib Omar tour, Hafizullah um, Ta'ala, mm-hmm. because he does a biannual um, retreat there um, in South Africa. And I learned about Darul Mustafa a little bit from that. When I could see online, I couldn't say it was so for me. I didn't know what anything like, with, okay, Sufi. I remember all of what I was told about Sufism when I was Sufi and like this, the, the, anyways, let me stay away from, <laughs> anyways. Um, I learned what I learned about Sufism. So I was little off, you know, I was little not for it. Um, but I met, um, I met, uh, um, some people I met, some people who had gone to study in Tanim, and I spoke with them. Um, and they eventually, um, and I attended my first ever molded, which was uncomfortable at first, but it was okay. It was all right. <laughs> at a person's house in New Jersey, um, in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, and it's still a friend of mine is uh, Hassan Petrus, uh, Sheikh Hassan Petrus. He's uh, one of the teachers at El Makassar right now. Um, he's the one that I met because um, I forget how it all transpired. No, it transpired because my wife's family's roots go to Trenton and their family friends there knew of them and they knew we wanted to go study. So we, they set us up to meet with him and his wife at their father-in-law's house. Um, but in any regard, so um, then that led to being able to meet with um, Sheikh Yahya Rodas and speaking with him about going to, um, going to Tirim and learning about that. And he said, just just go, Bismillah, don't worry about the money. And alhamdulillah, we were able to, between my non-Muslim parents, a couple other folks in the community that kind of gave, um, in different communities, just reaching out to people, was able to raise some funds to go. Um, however, the visas never came for Tidim, um, for Yemen. Um, we booked our flights in such a way that they went through Egypt as like a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of just got stuck in Egypt, essentially, because the, the visas never came. But we arrived in Egypt the same night as the massacre of uh, Rabia uh, uh, Adouya at that 
um, at that masjid where 900 plus protesters were um, mm. killed. And so, you know, we're immediately met with military, with AK-47s pointing at us and, you know, um, checkpoints, military checkpoints. So it was arranged for us to meet with um, another family from Philadelphia, from where we were there, um, Sheikh Noah Sanders, who's, um, who's still studying abroad right now. But um, so we stayed with them um, in their house. They helped us get settled and find our way there. And that's kind of how we were in Egypt for that year, kind of studying Arabic. And it wasn't until the year after um, where I just had an inkling to, to apply back to, to Yemen, to Dar Mustafa. And alhamdulillah, the visa came in five days before the visa was supposed to expire. So I had five days to kind of make a decision, get on a flight and get to Yemen from Cairo. To, yeah, it, they mentioned in the email, like, we apologize it's coming so late, but we hope to see you soon. <laughs> it was literally like it came on a Sunday night or a Monday, I think, or Sunday, I think. And um, the only flight I could take what, from Cairo to Yemen uh, through Sana'a was Thursday. It was like a, couple, a day or two before my birthday. And it was... Um, excited to talk with uh, one of my teachers in Cairo to see what he thought and literally bought the flight tickets like after Fajr Thursday morning packed up whatever in my apartment and left whatever behind (laughs) Um, got on that flight and went to Yemen like left that same day so yeah um that's how i ended up in uh, in today for a year about a year and a quarter after that year um and then unfortunately you know mashallah um i'm not gonna say unfortunately i was about to say unfortunately but no mashallah um you know the war occurred in in yemen we were getting my wife and i were getting pregnant with our second child once i got them over to yemen i initially went to yemen by myself and then brought her over later because she had to leave egypt to give birth to our first son but then we became second with our or pregnant with our second child in in yemen um, and ultimately, we just had to make the decision to return back to the United States because the U.S. Embassy got closed. There's a lot of complications with, you know, children born in Yemen at the time, um, especially with embassies that are closed, registering a child and being able to travel, et cetera, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, other fam- and other family stuff, you know, with family abroad and their worries or concerns. And so um, we, made this, we had to make the decision to leave from Yemen about a year and a half or a year and a quarter um, after being there, but alhamdulillah for the opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about the teachers that had the biggest impact on you and, and just some of the things you learned from them? So I would say the biggest influence of a teacher in Cairo was primarily, um, well, too. so I'm, the bulk of my Arabic studies were at an institute called uh, um, Alibana, um, Monica's Alibana, the so the Alibana um, Center for Arabic Language. Um, I can't really speak to the character of, of them <laughs> that contributed <laughs> to my journey, not to really throw, well, that does throw shade, but Allah forgive me. <laughs> uh, I mean, alhamdulillah, it's, they, you know, they had a very strong attachment to Islam. I'll put it, I'll put it that way. Um, very firm on some things um i'm gonna save a couple negative experiences anyways uh but the two that definitely had an influential impact on me and one i still maintain a connection with him now um he was a he was an imam of a masjid in the Muqattam district in cairo 
Um, his name was uh, Sheikh Hayatim. And I don't know why, but we just really developed a very close bond. You know, I prayed in this masjid. He learned, okay, who's this foreigner here, whatever like that. But he would teach me Arabic <coughs> for um, for free and tajweed and things like that. Um, I still, you know, okay, you know, offered to pay him, you know, and um, and uh, um, would teach him, try to teach him English in turn, whatnot like that. But we just became really close. And we still, you know, every once in a while, we'll check in, you know, here and there, even now. It's just, what, you know, a few years, seven years later, subhanAllah, seven years later, um, almost seven years, six and a half. Um, he's just, just a good man. And we would just sit in this masjid, he would teach me and just uh it was just really really good and we would we would talk and you know with my broken arabic um and then another teacher that was really really influential i mean he was you can blame him for me not being hanafi anymore um he was a tajweed teacher and he opened me up to realities of the religion that this gets a little bit more sufi based but you could say but he opened me up to realities of the religion that i truly felt and tasted and experienced and are difficult to articulate. Um, what I can say from this is that the way he would teach Sajweed was absolutely beautiful. But he was very, very, <clears throat> he was very, very firm in how he taught Tajweed, making you practice over and over and over and over and over again. And I feel the best Tajweed teachers are the ones that are really actually the hardest on you for how you're reciting the Quran um, because they don't, they don't mess around with the recitation of the Quran. Um, and, I, and I think it's, and I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back or anything such as that, but even though my Arabic understanding isn't um, <clears throat> where it was or where I want it to be and my, you know, ability whether reading, writing or whatever, but you know, it, there is a, there, I, I definitely thank this teacher of mine for when I do speak to other Arabs um, in Arabic and what have you, that they, they would think that I have a fluency in Arabic because they mentioned that my pronunciation of certain letters and whatnot is just very, very, on point better than theirs and so i really thank this touch we teach just for that and inshallah I pray for increase in goodness and sincerity and, and um and continuance on that um and learning in that inshallah but um there was one class that um he came and um you know we were sitting in the musalla in the masjid and um he sat down in front of me and looked at me and then he told me he'll be right back and then he came back with a small cup of water. And subhanAllah, I was fasting that day. I just remember, <laughs> I was fasting on that day. I was fasting on that day. And, um, and I tried to politely decline the water. <laughs> um, when he brought it for me, he said, here, have this to drink. Um, and actually, before he offered it to me, I saw him, like, you know, hold the cup up to his lips and like, he blew in it, et cetera. Um, I didn't know exactly what, but, you know, right before, and he took a small sip himself and then put the cup down and then asked me to drink it. Um, and this was our first interaction with the class. Not, you know, said salam, but like, not how are you or anything such as that for the day. And I tried to politely decline and he got angry and he commanded me like, this is an ummer, this is a command. You drink this. <laughs> so then I got scared. Because <laughs> he his face just changed and said, no, you're drinking this. Um, and so then I was like, I, I, I drank the water 
with him watching me making sure I drink and I drank a like a little sip and he said, no, finish it all. <laughs> I was like, Oh my goodness. what is going? On? Why is he making me drink this water? And then when I finished the water, he just nodded his head. And it's like, good. Um, took the cup. And then he just commenced class. <laughs> it's like no conversation about it. No, what was this? But immediately after leaving from that class, I had a lot of pent up, tension inside of my chest just generally just living life um and just a hustle and bustle and you know some personal things i was dealing with but there was just such a clarity that just came it, it was a feeling I, it's hard to describe it was just i just felt so clear inside of my heart at that moment you know leaving that class and just things in life made sense and just a renewed sense of it's the calm of steadfastness within this and within the religion and a sense of just clarity that just overcame me um and also a very convicted thought that you know i need to actually follow within the shafi metta path i need to not dabble within the hanafi metta for whatever reason i don't know why that came to my mind at that time but it did um and just seeing the world in a different light and i was just exposed to that after this class uh, you know it's not like this feeling persists you know every single waking moment of my day <laughs> it doesn't but um but i felt that at that time and I think that helped pave the way for maybe being able to receive what I what I did in Tadim. And I mean, mm. in terms of the teachers in Tadim, I mean, what can be said? <laughs> you know, we, we would be interviewing here all day if um, I was to speak about everybody I came across and what they showed me in their character. Um, in an inverse way, I'll say this about Tadim, that because the environment is so pure, and I think Sheikh Yahya and others described it this way. It's like when you take a dirty rag and you dip it in pure, like distilled water. And then when you take the, in the, and you see the dirt just starts to dissipate into the water and comes off that rag. And then, you know, that, and then you see just how dirty the rag actually is. And when you take it back out, et cetera, so you have to go back cleaning the rag. It's like when you're dipped into team, you're like that rag and the environment is just so pure that you start to see all of your own. It's all about your nafs, your own, your own self at that point. So you see all of your little faults, your little mistakes, your little, your little ego starts coming out. And all the little nasties that exist inside of you. And so that's something that, you know, if you're not aware of it, um, it can really consume you, you know, into the end. It's not every student that goes there isn't, um, you know, oh, mashallah, sacred student of now. No, it's not. There's a lot of students there that struggle. And you know, they never tell you, um, or you never would realize, um, with very personal things, family things, or emotional things. Um, but it's a blessing at the same time because then you see what you need to work on, you know, being in that pure environment and seeing your teachers and it's important that you keen in on yourself as opposed to just trying to create a caricature of you trying to just copy your teachers for the sake of just copying without really addressing um all of your own deficiencies and so that's something i can speak about you know the teachers being witnessed in team you know and alhamdulillah i got some exposure to them because i met habib Ali jifri when he came to cairo when i was in cairo and habib called him slip off um, i met him when and I sat in some of their lessons and I would attend some of the majalis and moulds and recitation and whatnot when I was in, when I was in Cairo. So I got more exposure to Tinim at that point. 
And alhamdulillah, I was able to have a trip when I was in Cairo. So going back again, back to Cairo, I was able to, um, I met some brothers from uh, an island off the coast of Kenya called Lamu Island. And there's um, called the, Rabat, uh, the Riyadh Rabat. It's a, a school called Riyadh, um, which is all Shafi, Tirimi influenced black, like African um, school that's been there for over a century. Um, and I, you know, started getting exposed with those brothers out there. We, we were able to make a visit um, out there and spend some time in Kenya at this little island. And even in that trip, <laughs> you fly into Nairobi and then you fly into um, in a city on the northeast coast of Kenya called Malindi. And even still then, you go on a bus ride off-road no, I'm no, I don't know. It's not a road. It's just <laughs> a bus is going somewhere. And when I say you're in Africa, I, you're in Africa. Uh, <laughs> grass huts and like just you, you see it all. Um, and it drove up northeast coast all the way up to this island located just where Somalia and Kenya meet, uh, right at that northeastern tip. Um, you're just on that bus ride for about five, six hours off road, just going. And you come to a point and there's no electricity, no, just pure, just, just pure, just pure God's creation, subhanAllah. It's beautiful. Um, and we came to a point where, you know, you get to, um, get to like a, what do you call it? Like a, the bay, the bay. Um, and to take us to the island, the island wasn't far, you know, it's off the coast. But we had to get on a small little rickety rowboat <laughs> in the middle of the, when I say the middle of the night, I mean like it was like midnight. Um, and when I say it was rickety row, I, I it was a rickety rowboat, it's like stepping on that thing. <laughs> but Heather, I, I tell you that seeing the stars painted in the sky at that time in the middle of the ocean on this little rickety boat. And looking up at the night sky, the word beautiful, it, it doesn't suffice to really mm. actually like describe what it is. Not There's no electricity, no artificial lighting for I don't know how many miles. It's just pure, it's just a paint, it's, it's a painting unlike any other painting in the sky. Alhamdulillah, we were able to arrive at the thing, but my wife gave me the condition that we were not taking that trip on the way back, so she made me pony up to find a way to pay for a flight from the island to the mainland. <laughs> we're doing that again. But I came across people, you know, complete strangers that never knew us on this journey to Kenya. So Kenya was also part of the journey. Yeah. Um, didn't know them complete strangers when we arrived in Malindi we had an hour before we could get to the bus we were met there by a sheikh who was like a brother or a cousin of some brothers that I met there were studying at Azhar in Cairo they treated us like we were next of kin like we were mm -hmm. literal brothers and sisters the food that they gave us the hospitality the love it was just out of this world and when we got to the island we met the other brothers of our friends from Cairo and it was all the same they're with us hand and foot it was just, just, it's that beauty of just of Islam of just, you know, mm. just souls connecting, you know, and just like, 
that's you know that's really being there for somebody and loving somebody it, it just really is um you see the beauty in their character and them you know feeding you and making spending on you and um uh, making sure you're taken care of checking in on you <clears throat> everything even my wife she came down we actually came down with food poisoning on the island and um she got it worse than me because she was pregnant <laughs> at the time mm-hmm. um to the point where we had to take her to the hospital and get her fluids but literally they helped me because there's no ambulance. This is a, an island that has very narrow alleyways as streets and donkey poop lining those alleyways and an open latrine system. Yeah, <laughs> open latrine system. So literally like the waste goes through the city and like, you, yeah. So <laughs> there's no, uh, there's no, what do you call it? Um, flushing with the toilets like that. Um but literally helping me carry my wife um, uh, on my back or with a donkey to the medical center so that way she could get treated. Like, and they came like in the morning. Like it was just, and subhanAllah, just beautiful people. And I think that's a very valuable lesson that I was able to take is that no matter, especially in the hardest of places to live, there's beautiful people everywhere. A lot of what we see, you know, we put a lot of pretense out there and I think our times on social media and a lot of caricatures of ourselves on social media, on different platforms. And we try to be somebody else a lot. And we think we're being ourselves. We're actually trying to be, we're actually being somebody else, but really our beauty really lies in just, just being human and connecting to other humans and our full range of emotions and everything. And I think that was something I was able to see from these people. and something I try to take value in for myself now from all my teachers, really just being, authentic self and experiencing a full range of emotions, but balancing that with trying to refine your emotions and who you are and your character within a prophetic, um, within a prophetic uh, framework of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his companions, Ali, uh, and it's just beautiful to witness and to see. Thank you so much for painting that beautiful, that picture. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, what was it like um, coming back to America? What did you hope to, to do when you got back? That's a tough question because, like I mentioned to you about <clears throat> Tadim exposes you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got, I got exposed, um, you know, in terms of a lot of uh, faults in my own character and person um, that I, you know, you get aware of, but you don't really work to address it. And, you know, I still try to address those things now, but it was difficult coming back for me. I wasn't coming back to a community. Um, it wasn't like a community sponsored me to be there. Um, in Cairo, I, I had to balance my Arabic studies with teaching English um, to random kids. And Sadim, fortunately, my uh, my sister-in-law supported us a little bit um, when we were there. But it wasn't like a, it wasn't a, a community that I was coming back to that sponsored me or anything such as that. So I didn't really come back to anybody. And quite frankly, I was pretty alone. Um, coming back and so that was and you know because you're alone then it's like you know you you have a family and kids you have to work you have to um take care of them who's going to do that for you and i'm not one to really kind of ask for things so um so i was really kind of just floating just getting back into the work world and i tried to maintain a semblance of you know commitment to the um to the schedule and to the game, but you know, that fades out, that fades out. Um, because you just get caught up in life at that point. And so it was, uh, I'll be quite honest, you know, 
it was it was rough. Um, a lot of those emotions I described to you that you know we were in college came back in full swing at that time, and it was really rough and difficult and quite lonely. Um, and alhamdulillah, my wife and I were able to work through it. Um, but needless to say, you know, you know, it was it was it was rough. Um, alhamdulillah, she was there for me through it. Alhamdulillah. Um, but you know, you you start to com- you you start to compare yourself with other students of knowledge. So and so is doing this. So and so is doing that. So and so is being taken care of by these people. You know, nobody's here to take care of me. You know, you you go through those things. Um, yeah, I, I want to I, I want to communicate that message out there. I think it's a, a sense of healing for myself, but also just a reality of you know, whether it's people that go to study or whatever, you know, in our communities. You know they're they're real, even if they don't maybe portray with these kind of emotions. These kind of emotions can exist in them, and it's really just have to be there for people. Um, and so, you know, for that year, it was just kind of just being lonely there in Detroit for a year. Um, I didn't reach out to you know other scholars or anybody like that a couple times here and there, but. I didn't really ingratiate myself into any specific communities and I started isolating myself. So the aloneness was a, a good portion of it was also self-inflicted as well. Cause I just felt inadequate. I didn't feel good enough. I had my own insecurities as well. And so I wasn't teaching. I didn't start anything with teaching until the past year until I was able to really actually start to understand my place. And really it's one thing to know from the books obligations for da'wah or for teaching and um to relate for me even if it's just an ayah but you don't really but it's one thing to know those things from the books but it's another thing to feel them and to feel those teachings from um imam abdul bin alawi al-haddad and from others and from other writings and your teachers that mention about no matter what you know don't worry about it just teach whatever's out there to do what you can do your part i understood that but i didn't feel it and i couldn't bring myself to teach or to get really engaged in that or anything like that when i couldn't feel it when i still knew my own faults and my own mistakes yeah they say well you know there's a hadith from the prophet you know that uh, the one who repents from a sin is like he who has never sinned in the first place yes i know that but i don't feel it you know and so that, that's this huge difference um, between knowing something and feeling something. And I needed to feel it. I needed to feel it. Otherwise, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just, I wouldn't be able to be authentic or sincere in anything. I, I didn't feel that way at least. Um, and so eventually I was able to actually, um, um, I was, um, I found after I was working in Detroit area for about a year, um, I had the opportunity to actually take my work within abuse and neglect of children. Um, uh, and I was able to take that to, um, to an orphanage in a rural village in Tanzania, Africa, which is just below Kenya. Um, and I interviewed with them and they really liked me and they and I, you know, I had a lot of good visions and they really, they brought me in as a consultant to kind of create a, a social and emotional wellness program for their teenagers and their young adults because a lot of the children that came to the orphanage in their early years, they wouldn't present with any, you know, emotional issues or anything such as that as a result of the abuse and neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really my background. I graduated with a degree in psychology. But things they found would come up in their young adult years and they didn't know what to do. And so um, we made a decision and we went out to Tanzania 
for another year. And we were thinking to be in Tanzania as kind of like a springboard to get to another country to continue studies at, and that I could take this work, um, and I could take that work with me. Um, lo and behold, we became pregnant with a third child in Tanzania. <laughs> but also, um, uh, my father became much more ill um, at that time as well, too to the point where, you know, really needed to return back to the United States after about a year in Tanzania. Um, but although they weren't like specific Islamic teachers, so much more got exposed to maybe in a negative way, but also um, just feeling and learning how to love, love people um, really, really started to take hold in Tanzania and how to be there for someone and to really take a lot of those spiritual teachings and put them into practice. Um, that occurred in Tanzania uh, with those kids. And those kids, they still, <laughs> almost every day, they'll message me on Facebook or on WhatsApp, or and this is, what, three years later almost now? Um, you know, maybe not every, every day now. It was definitely every day for like the first year or year and a half or two. Um, maybe like every other day now, <laughs> every couple of days, like I'll get like a message or just something from one of them. And they still tell me how much they miss me and they want me to come back. And it's just... You know, it was at those times, and when I say be there for somebody, it's an example like this. I don't like to use myself as an example, but I feel like this can illustrate it. You know, I remember, and I think this is where you really build bonds with people and where people really become attached to you. And the administrators don't know this, but alhamdulillah, like quite a few of the kids like became Muslim, like at my hand, inshallah. I don't know how well they're actually coming to Islam. I think they kind of, because conversion stuff is difficult in Tanzania, so a lot of things have to be kept secret um, because of like rules with conversion and the government and whatnot. But um, but there are a couple few kids that you know I became Muslim more, discovered more of their Islam because I was there um, and prayed, you know. And it's just um, I remember sitting with quite a few of them, a lot of them, until 11, 12, 1, 2 in the morning, and they're crying because they miss their families and they don't know their families. They don't know their identities. They don't know. And just being, just being there, being relatable, um, understanding them, listening to them, you know, especially for youth, just listening to them without truly without judgment and just accepting them and just helping them to feel comfortable. Like it just, and just loving people. And just, and it wasn't just the kids there and the teenagers and the young adults, but also just my other like Tanzanian staff, um, the African staff as well those relationships I still have as well till, till today. Um, and just being real with people, them seeing the realness in you and you're not appearing like you're saving anybody or anything such as that, but it's just, hey, you're, you're just a companion on this journey that I'm taking. Let's continue walking together. You know, mashallah, one of them called me for Eid on, on Facebook. <laughs> he called, did a video chat with me on Eid to wish me an Eid Mubarak. You know, and this is three years later, a staff member. Um, Asa is his name actually he used to cut my son's hair um, you know so it's just it's, you know mashallah and then after coming back from Tanzania then that's when I kind of got to the New York City area and found work in New York City area and kind of distilling all of that exposure of myself and my faults for those years and all those feelings it finally fit into a place and I think that's w when I speak I do get very emotional because I usually speak as I'm reflecting, because I try to maintain as like as if I'm talking to myself in a certain way. Astaghfirullah. But, um, you know, it's just, um, you know, I took all of that and I finally felt 
after a little while being in the New York City area, I finally felt that balance that's spoken about in the books of, okay, if you're teaching, but, you know, you might have, you know, whatever faults or mistakes, or you might not feel sincere or whatever like that, but it's okay. And like feeling and knowing that it's okay, feeling and knowing that it's okay, like it's okay. And just, and not, not just telling yourself, don't worry whether you're sincere or not or whatever like that, but actually feeling like, okay, it doesn't matter what, how other people might digest, just go bismillah in the name of Allah, in the name of God, just go. Um, and truly being able to feel that, that bismillah, not just saying it, but feeling bismillah, it changes the game completely. And I pray that Allah SWT increases all of us um, in, our, in us being able to do things for his sake and his sake alone. And not just intellectually understanding it, but truly, truly feeling it and inculcating it and acting upon it in its, in its completeness and its sincerity and being holistic in our approach in our dealings with la ilaha illallah, that there is no God worthy worship except that and truly being that in every single thing that we do. Um, you shared a very touching story recently um, on mm-hmm. Facebook about finding Sheikh Hamdi and the Roda Institute in Ottawa. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and like, um, how did you find out about Roda and, and what did you find there? Yeah. Um, and they completely changed another game for me when I was there. SubhanAllah. Again, it's this theme of just people being for people, being with people. <laughs> if there's anything you, I, and it's an Islamic one. I'm not talking like a humanistic approach or whatever. It's deeply rooted in Islam. And we see this with the Sahaba, how they were with Rasulullah sallallahu They're just people. And that's something I saw at Roda. I just saw people that were just there for other people, trying to be true people for the sake of the creator of the people. Like, that's what you see there. Um, and you see it in pockets in other places, but really, like, for the West, like, mashallah, they do a beautiful job there. The community does. Um, I think, I, randomly, I think on Instagram, um, there might have been, I saw them randomly, or they saw me, right? I don't even know. But I remember just liking some of their posts. Um, and, um, you know, I saw some of the things from Sheikh Hamdi and Asa Shahnaz. Um, and I remember listening to, like, their Wisdom of the Quran series that's on YouTube. Um, and then it's, I'll, I'll be quite honest, it's just extremely cute how they finish each other's sentences. <laughs> Their husband and wife, you know, but like, she finishes each other's sentences. Like, it's really, I've never seen that before. Like, who teaches? Like, it's uh, the cute, the saying it's cute is really the most appropriate word to use because it really is. <laughs> I'm the alone, but, uh, but, uh, you know, in learning that, you know, they're, they took from, uh, you know, from the same teachers I have um, and seeing their work there in the community. And like, it just became very interesting. And I saw their advertisements for the, their inaugural winter retreat. And as I told you, I'm I'm not one to really ask really for money or whatever, or for assistance. I really, I'm really not. Um, but I felt it in me to ask for help because I didn't have any other way to get to the winter retreat other than if they were, able to give me some kind of scholarship and even when I asked if there were scholarship opportunities or anything I said you know I was asking if there kind of work I can do in return or something like that um, but they said bismillah and so Shahnaz and their team they, they made a decision like, bismillah go ahead come just come just get here we'll take care of you 
and they really took care of me there. Um, and it's another one of the situations, like it's one thing to speak about the community atmosphere. I mean, when I arrived there, have a, um, after um, um, I took a bus up to Ottawa and, um, you know, it's in the it's in December in Canada. So cold. <laughs> cold. Oh my God, it's so cold. Like literally, the wind is going into my bones when I was riding the bus in Ottawa. But um, when I arrived at the doors, when I arrived at their doorstep at like two in the morning, because uh, the retreat was supposed to start like after Fudger, I see almost everybody in the community, when I say, I mean, like, just regular people, cleaning it up, moving rugs, setting up things, setting up tables, like, everybody's doing a job. I see Sheikh Hamdi, like, doing stuff, running back and forth, and I see Shanez is going and doing stuff back and forth. Like, everybody's just, there's no, like, here are the workers, here are the, no, it's like, everybody's there trying to make it work. And that's what I saw the entirety of the retreat. Everybody has a role there. And it's not like a self-defined, like, well, this is the, well, I mean, actually, you could say, like, yeah, this is the moonshit guy, this is the moonshit girl, this is the, <laughs> it's like, but everybody has a, but that's the, that's the key, though, that everybody has a role, no matter how old they were, and maybe their role is to, you know, take a distinguished position, like, in this specific chair, and, like, they're the auntie, and, like, they're, like, that's, like, their thing, or if it's, like, these little girls that during the mole and during any song, like, it, no, it, it's your job. You have to be cute and dance around in a circle, like, cause that's just what you love to do. And like, that's like, everybody has a role that like, they're not told that, like nobody's told that, but it's just like people naturally fit in is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And it's just really for the first time, um, for the first time in my life, I felt like I fit somewhere. Mm. That's what I felt there. Um, that I fit both in who I am as a man, as a black man, and also just as a Muslim. I just, I felt like I finally fit somewhere um, with people who really weren't expecting anything from me, you know, or whatever like that. It's just, it's that feeling, like I said, of bismillah, just in the name of God, just doing whatever you do just for the name of God, in the name of God, just doing it and just feeling and being, just being, being a human being and the entirety of what being means for the sake of the creator of the beings, like that's just, of all beings, that's just like, that's what I felt there and that's what I experienced there. Um, and that's what I also learned intellectually um, from from them as well, rooted within our tradition, within our teachings as well. Um, and that's why I just feel so, um, and so I do a lot, I try to do whatever I can do with work with them now. I try to do that because I believe in the work that they're trying to do and how they've just, and how they've taken from traditional teachings and how they've been working to apply it um, to to how we're living in the West now. And it's something that I really think, especially for American Muslims being, you know, just as um, culturally diverse, if not more, especially in the East Coast here, um, we often can, you know, fall into, you know, 
followings based off of scholarly personalities or cultural um, basedness that we stick to. Or we try to just mainstream it and just try to be like non-denominational Christians, essentially, or like non-denominational Muslims. Um, but really just dropping pretense and just, you know, not being in our own little bubbles. And then we're all in our own little bubbles inside of the massage, but no popping the bubbles and learning how to really embrace one another. Um, I think that's something that and you, f- you find in some communities or some families and whatnot. But really, I think if we really want to be here in this country and really, you know, heal the divide between black indigenous Muslims in the States and immigrant Muslim populations that came, you know, decades ago or what have you first generation second generation um immigrant muslims or um converts as well or you know black muslims have been you know been here for a century or, or longer like i think really have to pop those bubbles and really embrace one another and inter and integrate into communities but not integrate just for the sake of like you want a certain demographic present no integrate in terms of mutual assistance and help and being in the mud with one another to help uplift one another. Cause we're all here for the same cause. We're all here, the same cause of establishing Islam in a land of which there is no Islam. Uh, Islam is the truth and it needs to be established in every single land. It's not like we're going on a jihad necessarily, but you know, but we're still here to have people say la ilaha illallah. That's the whole purpose of the existence. The purpose of the existence is to say la ilaha illallah. And if we can help other people towards that, then that's what we need to do. It's the blessing from Allah. Beautiful. Um, my last question is pretty much just exactly that. Um, what, what did you see either in Ottawa or where, what do you try to do in your, in your own communities where you teach that really breaks those, those bubbles and helps to strive for that kind of integrated community, as you said? That's what I'm struggling with trying to do right now. Um, and it's a little hard um, up here in North Jersey. I don't, I, I, I really want, and I think this, and Alhamdulillah, you know, Rhoda's really kind of, I've only there for a week, but they've really taken me in like a family member. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think more and more I'm getting more guidance from Sheikh Hamdi and Ensa Sheikh Naz. Um, but for the longest, I've just wanted um, that, you know, oversight scholar to just embrace me and take me in and to help me to figure things out. Um, and to guide my any teaching that I do and continuous learning and et cetera like that. So I, I, had, I hadn't really sought that out necessarily, but it wasn't also something maybe available to me before. And so in, in North Jersey, I think that's really, it's pretty difficult. Cause I don't really fit. Um, I still don't really f- necessarily fit anywhere. I don't feel um, not fully, not fully in terms of like culturally, religiously or you know whatever like that um, i mentioned you know I, I live in a my community primarily here is um you know primarily um you know black salafi muslim and so i don't really fit there fully um i don't live in you know bergen county where sakina institute where we're doing some things with sakina um and so like i'm just kind of still like floating um you know alhamdulillah but still in trying to heal that i'm trying to kind of a lot of what i've spoken about in this um in this interview um is really 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 emphasizing relationships relationships with other people relationships with the self and relationship with Allah Azawajal. and um i like to focus more on a practical spirituality 
to really hit those points. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not in, cause I've, you know, I've forgotten, you know, I've forgotten things over the years. So it's not, I don't feel entirely comfortable, you know, fully teaching Arabic. I don't feel entirely comfortable fully teaching Tajweed or, you know, like Fiqh or, you know, things like that. I don't feel entirely comfortable teaching those things. But where I feel like my lane is right now is um, a, a, maybe a practical spirituality that's hands-on, that's um, taken from our books. And when it comes to spiritual maladies, emotional difficulties, um, sins, transgressions, or virtues, characteristics um, from our Prophet some things like that, um, and finding ways to bring those to life, um, that's what I'm focused on and trying to do. Um, and I'm trying to continue my learning in, in different ways as well too, inshallah ta'ala, um, to, you know, bring up some other things. Um, but, you know, it's a continuous process. But that's, at least in the classes that I teach, I try to make them as practical and as, and as example-based as possible. So not just talking about, um, let's just say, uh, jealousy, right? And, you know, treatments for jealousy or what have you that might be described in the books, but what it could look like for us in its finer aspects in our day-to-day -day lives, um, practical examples of it that we all experience in our workplaces or wherever, and um, how it might manifest, especially on social media with us. That's something I'm very big on, how things manifest in social media, um, and et cetera, like that, or in our relationships with other people, and ultimately bringing it back to you know, an individual has three primary relationships, their relationship with God, the relationship with other, with the creation of God, right? And the relationship we have with our own soul. Mm -hmm. And those things need to be in harmony for, the, those things need to be in harmony to truly live a religious life. It's not about the knowledge, learning and knowledge is there to help you towards that. It doesn't supplant it, you know? I think people can get kind of confused with ideals, ideals, Islamic ideals, and thinking you have to have a picture-perfect ideal that's outlined in the books as opposed to as opposed to um you know like the like the should like you should do this you should do that and yes we should do those things but it's not about just copying those for the sake of copying them but also feeling it as well and bringing yourself spiritually and emotionally to the point where you're feeling like oh yeah i want to pray these two sooner extra prayers you know stuff mm -hmm. like that and feeling the feelings like why so you know the prophet sallallahu would um uh, for example like okay it can be sunnah to pray to hajjud right but why is it sunnah to pray to hajjud what was he feeling that he wanted to pray to hajjud what was his relationship like with god where he wanted to get up and leave the bed of his wife and pray to God. What does it say about the dynamic with one's relationship with God that you would rather sacrifice pleasure, immediate pleasure that's halal, that's complete halal and permissible and praiseworthy even, um, you know, with spouse or whatever, or just what have you, but you do it because there's a greater pleasure that you're seeing in communing with God. Like that is sunnah. Um, and so that's something that, <clears throat> you know, I try to bring to myself and to get others to reflect on too. So a lot of my classes are also reflection type based and I'm very heavy on, you know, um, trying to make them also emphasizing serving other people. And that's how we learn to love one another. So I'm very big on trying to 
serve one another and being there for one another and trying to bring those into my classes in some regard as well. Thank you so much. Um, you hit on so many topics that I think are, are so relatable um, to inshallah everyone that's listening, um, especially like when it comes to finding community and finding a place where you really uh, feel like you fit in. Um, I know it's something I've struggled with, I'm sure others have as well. And inshallah, we all find that community. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Seth. <laughs> the, the talk was, uh, please forgive me for being so long-winded. And, oh, no. <laughs> um, it, it was so nuanced and so beautiful. So I really thank you. Thank you for that. No, thank you. Alhamdulillah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and increase you in good in every which way. Some